0: As you're getting your Bibles out, I I want us to just pause for a second and just close our eyes and just think for just a minute about how worthy God is of our praise. Before we dig into this scripture, I want us to just think for a moment. You know, there's coming a day when we'll be gathered around the throne and we'll be singing about the worthiness and the holiness of God. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. You see, when we fully understand his worthiness we at the same time understand how unworthy we were to receive grace. How there was nothing about us that impressed God to one extent. And yet, he thought we were worthy to die for. So just in this moment let's just ask God to help us to live lives that are worthy of the salvation we've been granted and the grace we've been given and the love that we have been shown Father is one unworthy soul I bless you and I thank you and I am eternally indebted to you that the just died for the unjust the Worthy Lamb of God died for unworthy sinners like me. Lord, we bless your name. It's not that we don't know it. It's just sometimes we don't stop long enough to just bless you. And talk about your worthiness. Thank you, Father, for hearing the prayers and the thoughts of hundreds of people in this room tonight. And I pray that it has been a sweet aroma in your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. one thing you know if you come to Sherwood is you're going to get great music, and uh, we've had great we have it every week we've had great music today, and uh, listen folks I, I preach in enough places and i and I, I see a lot and I know a, a, i've been I, I mean this is not my first rodeo you know. I'm 58 and I've been in a lot of churches and I've served a lot of great churches but I've never served a church that's had better music than this church has weekend and week out and I hope you never take it for granted I hope that it's always a fresh uh, rejoicing for you that God has placed in an out of the way place like Albany, Georgia the kind of talent that he has and uh, given us those kind of Folks, to lead us, uh, they are not worshiping for us. By the way, they are just pushing us to worship and toward the one that is worthy of worship. I, I want us to look in uh, this hour with not, not. Don't get at me. Oh no, he's going to preach an hour. Second uh, Timothy chapter one, under the title "In times like these." If you'll remember from our last message, last words are lasting words. And in this short epistle, 83 verses, what's broken down into 83 verses and four chapters, Paul is sharing his heart. Now, if you wanted a little bit of a distinction between First and 2 Timothy, it's this. In 1 Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy how the man of God, the person of God, should live inside the church in the family. In 2 Timothy, he's telling the man of God, the person of God, how to live their faith out in a pagan world. And so one is how does your faith affect your life inside the church? Two is how does your faith affect your life in a lost world, in a world that is without God? In 1 Timothy, he calls uh, Timothy, my son in the faith, but in 2 Timothy, He calls him my beloved son. Here is a man who mentored a young man, who invested in a young man, who trained him and taught him, discipled him, and helped him along the way, who knows that he's about to die. And now he's got to come along and give some last words. There won't be any other letters to Timothy, there won't be any more correspondence, there will be no more meetings. This is it. Paul is expecting at any day the latch to lift on the gate of the jail cell and him to be taken out and decapitated. And so he says to Timothy, when I'm gone, knowing that the times you are going to face are going to be even more difficult than the times I lived in. This is how you need to live. This is the way you need to act. And so in 2 Timothy chapter one and verse three, He says, I'm constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Now there's two words there that jump out to me. One is tears. You can't invest your life in somebody very long and not be connected to them emotionally. I mean, it just there's just a tie that goes there, when you have invested your life in someone, when you have poured into them, when you've taught them, trained them, discipled them, led them to Christ. Whatever it is, you're invested in them. And Paul talks about tears. And folks, one of the things that we're missing in the church today is tears. We're missing the weeping because we're so disconnected. That we can hold people at a distance and stand people off and say, I don't want to get to know you. I got enough problems of my own. But here's a man who has his own battles to fight, his own issues to face, but he's investing in Timothy because he knows that Timothy is his best investment for the gospel to continue after he's gone. And he talks about his sincere faith. That word sincere means without hypocrisy or unfeigned or no pretense, that it is a genuine faith. Now, Paul is concerned about some things, and he warns Timothy about what's going to happen when he's gone, so you got your notes there. Uh, Let me just walk through this quickly. First of all, some will depart from the faith, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Some will deny the faith, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. Some will backslide in their faith, 1 Timothy five twelve. Some will be deceived from the faith, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. Some will go astray from the faith, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 21. Some will destroy the faith of others, 2 Timothy two nineteen And some will will be rejected concerning the faith, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. Now you see there in your notes a quote by Vance Havner. I just want to read the, the last line. He started with a knowledge of God and has been going the other way ever since. This is Paul talking about humanity that, that humanity is not developing, it's not evolving, it, it is devolving. We've been moving away from God ever since, and evil builds upon evil. And so Paul says, It's just going to get worse, Timothy, after I'm gone. That's the reality of the growth of sin. That's the reality of the battle that you're going to be fighting. And so he gives him three key concerns. Concern number one is his concern for the gospel. His concern for the gospel. He wants to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed, that it's not diluted, that it's untarnished and unblemished and not compromised. He wants to make sure that this gospel that he has given his life to, has been beaten for, shipwrecked for, imprisoned for, and now will die for, is carried on through the ministry of Timothy. And so if you would look at verse 14 of chapter one, and then I want you to turn to chapter four and verse two, because I want you to see his concern for the gospel. Verse 14, he says, guard the truth. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, preach the word. Now, connect those two verses together. Guard the truth, preach the word. Here's what Paul was saying to Timothy. The best way to guard the gospel is to preach it. Because if it's not declared, if it is just confined within a little Bible study where we're just talking about if we're not preaching the gospel, then it will get diluted by people who don't know the gospel or want to change the gospel like we looked at just a moment ago, that will depart and deny the faith. And so the best way to guard it is to preach it. And the level of our faith is connected to the level of our commitment to the Word of God. I, I am so convinced that, that people in liberal churches and mainline denominations that seem to have no power, that seem to be lifeless, if they heard the gospel, they would get on fire. Now, the problem with them is the gospel is not being preached in many of those churches. It's being watered down. And some of them have become just a social gospel. But you can feed a man and clothe a man but if you don't tell him about Jesus, he just goes to hell with a full stomach and a nice shirt. You've got to know that the gospel is what drives us. And so he's saying we've got to preach the gospel. Now, that's what the mainline churches need to do. What evangelical churches need to do is we need to quit taking it for granted as if everybody knows it and as if everyone has heard the gospel. There are people living in Albany, Georgia that have never heard the gospel. There are people, listen, (laughs) I mean, we're on TV all the time. We got a 24-7 television station. I'm on TV, Daniel Simmons is on TV, and, and he and I can go out in this town and nobody know who we are. It's not because I'm not preaching the gospel, but the question is, are they hearing it from anybody? So obviously they're not watching the Sherwood channel. I mean, that's a given. But the question is, is anybody in their circle of influence sharing the gospel with them? And so Paul is concerned that the gospel be proclaimed and and that the gospel be protected. And here's the key to a strong faith. Here's the gospel. To believe the unbelievable, to see the invisible, and it accomplishes the impossible. Well, I can't see Jesus. No, you can't. I, I don't understand all that. I don't understand how God can change a life like that. You don't have to understand it. It's impossible to understand. You got to have experienced it to know that it's real. And the best way you experience it is to meet somebody who's already experienced it and see the change in their life. When we were uh, at Auburn this week, uh, showing the movie to the football team, Uh, Ken shared his testimony about growing up and his dad being a drug addict and an alcoholic and how he was on the same path when he was 17 years old, the same age as some of those guys that are playing football before tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. he said, God got a hold of my life. See, there's a living testimony that God changes lives. You can say, well, can't change me, he can change anybody. He can change anybody. Secondly, he's concerned for future generations. He's concerned for future generations. Paul is concerned that the gospel doesn't die with him, and it doesn't die with Timothy. And we're going to see that as we go through this book, but that future generations are knowledgeable and know how to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ because people were going to attack it. Here's how people attack it today. You're just naive. If you believe that old book, you're just naive. People will water it down and say it's no longer relevant. That doesn't apply anymore. I remember hearing a friend of mine say one time in a church, he says, uh, God didn't say avoid sexual immorality, and this was the year he said it, God didn't say avoid sexual immorality until 1992, and then it's okay. He just said avoid immorality. Sexual immorality. It was relevant when God said it. It's still relevant today Amen. We wouldn't have a lot of the health issues that we have and a lot of the social issues we have if people just did what the book says That they're supposed to do avoid sexual immorality. We would never have a counseling session in this church about people having affairs if we believed the book Amen. and lived by what it says I didn't get many amens there. Do y'all need to come in for counseling or you want to shape up here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's concerned for Timothy. Now walk with me through 2 Timothy. Verse 6, stir up the gift of God within you. Chapter 2 and verse 1. And so I want you to underline stir up. Chapter 2 and verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong. Underline be strong, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter two and verse fifteen. Be diligent. Underline be diligent, to present yourself approved to God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Second Timothy three fourteen. You however continue. Underline continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And then in 2 Timothy 3, 17, he gives us the reason why we need to stir up, why we need to be strong, why we need to be diligent, and why we need to continue, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see, Paul was saying to Timothy, I, I'm not worried about you taking a leadership course to find out how to be a better leader. I'm not worried about you taking a preaching course to find out how to be a better communicator. I'm not worried about you having an outgoing personality that is winsome and people are attracted to you. Paul said, Timothy, What I am concerned about with you is that you are adequate for the work that God has called you to, and you can't do that without stirring up the gift within you, without being consistent, without being diligent, and without continuing in what you've heard. Paul's concern was that Timothy would have the knowledge and the wisdom to apply the Word of God when he spoke it. What matters to God is not the preacher's personality. It is not the preacher's gifts. It is not whether he's popular or not. What matters to God, Paul is trying to say to Timothy, is you need to have power. And power comes not from you preaching your opinions, but power comes from preaching the Word of God without apology. That's what God honors, is His Word. And when the messenger is lined up with the message and doesn't try to change the message, then God can honor the preaching of that word. So what kind of man do you identify as a man of God? These are the characteristics that ought to be in a person that says that they're called into ministry. First of all, he's called. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. He has to be called, not by his mama, not by his youth minister, not by anybody else, called by God. But if he's called, then he will be sent, chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 15, and chapter 2, verse 19. And when God sends him, he is equipped, chapter 2, verse 20, through chapter 3, verse 17, And when he's equipped and he responds to the call and he responds to the sending and he acts on what he's been equipped to do, then he will be rewarded, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. So what kind of person is God looking for? Whether a preacher or a member of a church, what kind of person is God looking for? Number one, for a person on fire for God, on fire for God. By the way, many leaders of revival and awakening have been hated and despised. They have not always been well received because revival and awakening demands a response. And you've either got to say no to God or yes to God. And here's the deal. We don't want to tell God we're not interested in his ways. So what we do is we tell the preacher we're not interested in what he's saying. And so we push God off by blaming the man of God for preaching the word of God, but in reality, we're pushing God off, not God's man. So he calls for a man to stir up the gift of God or kindle afresh. NIV says, keep it fully aflame. The word stir up is related to rekindling a flaming emotion, stoking it, stirring it up. I remember going into ministry with guys who had zeal and passion and they were gonna preach and love God and share the word and now they, they just look like whip puppies. I mean, they're beaten down, run over, they've given up, they've compromised, they back up, they're afraid to say something. You know, I can't tell you how many guys in ministry said, if I preach that, I'll get fired. Well, at least all you'll get is fired. They crucified Jesus for preaching that. I, I preached in a church 90 minutes from here on a Monday night several years ago, and I just preach like I preach to you. Okay, I mean I don't go preach a different message when I'm somewhere else, and so that they'll like me and take a big offering. Hey, I figure I can go anywhere one time, so you know I I just preach like I preach to you. And I'm standing there off to the side and I hear a deacon come up to the pastor and put his finger in his face. Say, hey, you ever bring somebody like that in here again, you'll be fired. Now, first of all, if I had been the pastor of that church, we'd have had a called meeting on Sunday morning and we would have dismissed that deacon from membership and from leadership. Because right. if you got a deacon that doesn't want the word of God, he shouldn't be a deacon. That's right. Period. End of discussion. I mean... That, that's a no-brainer. You don't even have to pray about that. <laughs> I mean, that's just a no-brainer. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, don't you get timid in front of those people. You're going to have these Gnostics and these Judaizers and these false teachers, and they're going to be pushing on you. You get stirred up, son, and you stand wall-to-wall and toe-to-toe with them. Don't you let them push you around. Stir up the gift of God. And in verse uh, chapter, look at chapter 4 and verse 14. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, stir up the gift of God. In chapter 4 and verse 14, he says, do not neglect the gift you have. In other words, every one of us have been gifted, and we need to act on the gift that we have. Nobody, here's, okay, this is real simple for time's sake. Nobody should have to motivate me to use the gift that God has given me. You say, well, I'm not an exhorter. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a prophet. Are you, do you have hospitality? Do you have mercy? I mean, what is your gift? Do you have the gift of service? Do you have the gift of generosity? Whatever it is, nobody should have to ever convince you to use it. I mean, it ought to be in your DNA. And so it had kind of slipped on Timothy. And so he says, Timothy, get out there, son, and get back in the battle. And then he comes to him in verse 14 and says, don't neglect it. Don't water it down. Don't, don't forget what you've been set apart to do. You've been called, sent, and equipped. If you want to be rewarded, you better step it up. I, I, am, uh, I get worked up over people that are worked up over the wrong things. Does that, does that ever happen? Maybe I'm the only one. I just get worked up over people that get worked up over the wrong things. One of my favorite Vance Havner sayings is, you know, I'm tired of people who scream like a Comanche Indian on Saturday at a football game and sit like a wooden Indian on Sunday in church. I mean, you think about it. Some of you, your wives can't even be in the room with you when you're watching a football game. I mean, you're sitting down, you're up, you're yelling, and you're jumping, and you're screaming, and you're pointing, and you're talking to the ref. No! And then when you beat your rival, you're just going ballistic, man. I mean, you're going, you know, snot's running out your nose. Tears are running down your eyes. You've put on your team colors. You've got the hat. You've, sang the, you've sung the, the alma mater song. I mean, you do, you've marched with the band. You've done everything. And then it comes time for church, and you just kind of sit and say, I don't really like this song. <laughs> I, uh, what, what else we got going on? When's the next thing? You see, we get worked up over the wrong things. But, you know, I've started sending, and Mark does this too, but I've started sending every now because I've got friends that just are obsessed. I mean, their nostrils flare over new technology. And they're just obsessed, you know, when the new iPad came out and when the new iPhone came out. And so now, every now and then, I'll just send something to one of my really weird, overly obsessed with technology friends. And I'll just say, sent from my iPad 7. (laughs) Or on my iPhone 12. We, we get obsessed about the wrong thing, and, and Paul is saying, stir up that which is within you. Stir up the gift of God. Stir up the power of God in your life. Don't be focused on the wrong things. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Look at the three things God has given us. Power, that word means energy, or enablement, or the ability to endure. God has given us energy. You ever met Christians like this? I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. I just so oh, it's just it's been a hard day. God's given you power, and you don't need a five-hour energy drink for His power. God's given you power, the ability to endure. Love, agape, self-sacrificing love, and He's given us discipline or self-control. So we're to be on fire for God. Secondly, we're to be on active duty. For the gospel. Being a soldier is not about wearing a uniform and always asking if you can have R&R. It is about being on active duty. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher." Paul had said in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me and don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't go into the closet afraid that somebody's going to criticize you if you stand for your faith. Don't be ashamed of being identified with God's people. Have you ever... I, this is a rhetorical question, and the answer is yes. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were ashamed to speak up for Christ? Every one of us would have to say yes. There have been times when you've heard somebody take God's name in vain, and you said nothing, and you just let it roll off your back. And inside you're saying, you know, that offended me. But it didn't offend you enough to say, you know, I really would appreciate it if you wouldn't talk about my God that way. You ever shamed on the campus, at work, wherever you are? You know, you heard about the lady that had a bumper sticker that said, honk if you love Jesus, and a guy honked and she got out and yelled at him. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, don't be ashamed. And, and see, if you guard the gospel and if you defend the gospel, you're going to be criticized. People are not going to like you because they have to make a decision about what you've just said. That's right. And so you've got to be ready. Paul says, don't be offended by it. He says, uh, and uh, it's interesting, in 1 Timothy, he says, some have departed me. Now he says, all have departed me. Four times in Second Timothy, you find this phrase, do not be ashamed. Four times. Four times, Paul is saying, now think about this. This is a young man that has walked in the shadow of the apostle Paul, who has listened to him, who has heard sermons and studied scripture with him privately that we don't even have recorded. And Paul says to this man with this wealth of knowledge, don't you be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed. Stand up and be counted. Chapter 2 and verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we walk through this book about what's going to happen in the last days and how men are going to abandon the faith. And so let me give you four things here before we move to the last point. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and you can write this in your notes or in your Bible somewhere. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he tells him to hold fast to the Word. Hold fast to the Word to the Word. Hold on. Be strong. In chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, not only hold fast to the Word, but handle correctly the Word. It's not up to you to decide what it says. Let it say what it says. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, he tells him to continue to believe the Word. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Continue to believe the Word. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he tells them to continue to preach the Word. Hold fast, hold correctly, continue to believe, and continue to preach. And then we come to the last point, which is be on guard for the gospel. Now, there... (laughs) There is a scene in the movie A Few Good Men that is really a strong scene. Now, the guy broke the rules. But when Jack Nicholson is on that stand and he says, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall, you think, yeah, we do. We do want soldiers on the wall. And we do need them on the wall. Why? To guard, to defend, and to protect. I want somebody on sentry duty. I want somebody watching to protect. I want somebody on the lookout for the enemy. And so when Paul says to guard the gospel, chapter 1 and verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So what Paul does now is he lifts Timothy's eyes from the gospel to the Lord of the gospel. Timothy, you're just not guarding the gospel. You are standing for the Lord. And you're guarding his reputation and his word and his gospel. What Paul says has been committed to me, I am transferring and committing to you. The one that has entrusted this to me will enable you to stand for it the way that I've stood for it. Here is the witness of an old soldier about to die who says to his young recruit, who's still a little wet behind the ears, don't blow this after I'm gone. You see, when I look back over my life and I've got less ahead of me than I've got behind me, but when I look back over my life and I see the people that have poured into me, in times when it has been hard and when it has been difficult and when it has been frustrating, the one thing I've remembered is the old soldiers who poured into my life. Some of them were Sunday school teachers. One of them was my youth minister. I have to go back when I think, you know, this is just not worth it. I mean, it's just not worth it. I go back and I put myself in a rocking chair in Vance Havner's apartment when he laid hands on me Six months, nine months before he died. And gave me an ordination far greater than the ordination I got when I was ordained by my home church. I go back to walking in my old office where John Spencer's office is now. With Ron Dunn and him grabbing me on the inside of my arm and pinching me right here. I can still feel it and saying to me, son, if you ever mess up, if I have to come back from the dead, I'm coming after you. I go to a conversation I had in May with Warren Wiersbe, and sitting across the table from him, he said, Michael, I pray for you every day by name and for your family by name that you will stay in the battle. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. When an old soldier tells you that they're headed toward the finish line, hoping that you will continue what they did, it'll put some steel in your backbone. And you won't worry much about what other people think about you, but you'll think a lot about what soldiers who retired honorably and crossed the line and finished the race and ran the course you think about what they said. And this is what Paul is doing with Timothy. So what should old soldiers say to young soldiers? By the way, for those of you that are old enough to have kids or grandkids, this is what you need to say to those who are younger than you. Number one, the truth must be protected. The truth must be protected. We cannot add to it, we can't subtract from it, we can't impose our opinions on it, it has to be protected. One of my favorite movies is the movie Gettysburg. And one of the most famous people in the Battle of Gettysburg was Colonel Chamberlain. Chamberlain was in charge of a unit from Maine that had started out with over 300 soldiers and ended up with about 140. By the time they were at Gettysburg, they were the end of the line. They were the end that could be flanked. And when Chamberlain was given his orders, he had been a professor at a college. He was also a preacher of some nature. When Chamberlain was given his orders, he was told specifically, and the scene in the movie Gettysburg is very accurate to what happened in that moment. Chamberlain is told by the soldier this is the end of the line. If the Confederates get around you, they'll come in and come all the way around the side of the line and we'll be flanked. And we could lose this battle. This battle depends on you. And Chamberlain's men fought as Hood's brigade and others from Alabama came up that hill over and over and over and over again into bullets. Men were having to take guns off of men who had died to get the bullets out of their guns so that they could continue to fire. Then they ran out of bullets, and Chamberlain ordered a charge, a charge that would come from the end of the line and sweep all the way down and and box and move the Confederate forces back into a central place. And they did it. They fixed bayonets, and they charged with no bullets. In fact, soldiers were marching Confederate prisoners back behind the Union lines to go to prisoner war camps, and they're marching them there with no bullets in their gun. Why? Because one man understood his orders. You have got to protect the line until the last man, no matter what it costs. If every man in this unit dies and no one from Maine ever goes home to see their family again, you must protect the line. Folks, that's the command on us. The truth is to be protected at all costs. Secondly, the truth must be proclaimed, verses 13 and 14. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love, which, and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now, there are two key words there under this truth that must be proclaimed. First of all is the word retain. Second one is the word guard. Now, when I was studying this, it's interesting what the word retained means. It is an architectural sketch showing the structure of the building, not the facade. In other words, Paul says, don't get so concerned about the facade that you forget the structure, that it has to be soundly built. And it has to be built on a sure foundation, because if you're not standing on a sure foundation, then what you're proclaiming could fall over. So it has to be soundly built. So he's talking about the structure of a building, retain the structure. Now that's not tradition. It's the structure of the gospel, how it was laid out to Paul. It needed to be laid out to Timothy and he needed to lay it out to other people. Interesting thing about this building If you go up 55 feet to the point in this building, underneath this sound barrier that we've got, you will find a lot of steel beams connected by bolts. In many buildings to cut corners, oftentimes builders will connect steel beams and put a bolt in them and just turn a couple of times the the nut on that bolt and they will just walk away. But as we were putting the sound into this system, this is what we learned. Now, first of all, I haven't been up there to see this. I'm going on the testimony of others. Every bolt in this building, in the ceiling, is not only got the nut all the way up against it, but it's been sealed against it. So that there is no give No wavering, nothing coming apart after the contractor has been paid. Paul says you retain the structure. You make sure that what you're building can last over the course of time. And then he says to guard the gospel, to be on the wall, that there are going to be attacks and we're to be guardians. And then finally, the truth must have a witness, verses 15 through 18. Now, remember, four times he said, do not be ashamed. So, walk with me now, this last thing, and then we're going to sing. Mark, I want us to sing the Just As I Am song. Uh, look, just walk with me through First Timothy. Everybody got the truth must be a witness down? Okay, now get your Bibles out and just walk with me through this. Because here's the progression You want to know why we talk about whoever wants the next generation the most will get them? Do you want to know why we invest in children and why we invest in young people? This is it. This is the progression of the gospel that keeps a church alive and vibrant long after the founding generation is gone. Chapter 1 and verse 12. The gospel was entrusted to Paul. God entrusted the gospel to the apostle Paul. In chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul entrusted the gospel to Timothy. Now we've gone to the second generation. In chapter 2 and verse 2, Timothy is to entrust the gospel to faithful men. Now we have the principle of multiplication. He's to entrust it to faithful men. So Paul to Timothy, now Timothy to many to faithful men and then the last part of chapter 2 in verse 2 the faithful men are to entrust it to others right there you have four implied five generations of people committed to the gospel the greatest testimony this church will have is that generations from now should the lord tarry that this church still preaches and lives the gospel without apology.